You're listening to the podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church, a church in Gloucester, England. Well, we now come to the culmination of Stephen's speech in the book of Acts. We've been looking at it for these uh, last uh, three Sundays, and we come now uh, to the end of this uh, epic speech. And so we'll be picking up at verse uh, 45 and reading all the way through chapter 8, verse 3. Uh, So hear these words. Our fathers in turn brought it with them, that's the tabernacle, with Joshua when they disposed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God, and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Well, we now come to the end of this, and as I said, it's a very uh, epic speech, and it it culminates uh, what seems very tragic. This, This man who was preaching the gospel is now murdered before the very people he was speaking. And then from his execution stems this persecution of the church. And things, in a sense, begin to look bleak. Stephen's great point as he's trying to defend himself from this charge of blasphemy against the the law of Moses, against Moses, and against the temple, and against blaspheming God himself, ends with his rejection and his death at the hands of these wicked men. Well, as we come this morning, uh, looking at the, the culmination of this, uh, Stephen ends with two parts. Uh, the first is he defends the charge that he is blaspheming the temple in verses 
45 through 50. And then as, as you no doubt heard the, the end of his speech, calling these people stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart and ears, is really the, the punch at the end of this in verses 51 through 60. But in uh, chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, we see that, that above all of this, there is a plan that the sovereign God of the universe has, that even in the midst of this unjust execution and this terrible persecution of the church, God is still in control and is actually utilizing all of this, just as in the time of Joseph, for the good of his people and for the glory of Jesus Christ and the expansion of the church. And so as you come to the first section, as Stephen briefly deals at the end here with the temple, uh, in verses 45 through 50. Uh, he begins, again, as he's been doing, of, of bringing them through redemptive history, of reminding them on the ways in which God was worshipped outside of Jerusalem. And he starts here in, in verses 44, 45 and, and 46, speaking about the ways in which right, they were worshipping in the desert with the mobile tabernacle that was then brought into the land as, as they gained control of it. And it actually wasn't till the time of David when David was upon the throne, that the tabernacle was actually moved to Jerusalem. Right? There's this great scene in, in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 6, as David, as you may remember, is dancing before the ark, is this joyful procession. And that's the time, actually, they're moving the tabernacle into the heart of Jerusalem. So Stephen here, again, is, is subtly bringing out to them that the temple, the tabernacle, was in different places, and God was worshipped according to uh, according to all that he has commanded. Actually, the, the tabernacle was about 10 miles or about 15 kilometers west of Jerusalem the, during this time that then David moves it in. But note with me also what also uh, uh, Stephen is, is pointing out here. Whose idea was it to move the tabernacle? It actually wasn't God's. It was David's. David, who is now established as king, as his, his city is Jerusalem, he desires to bring the temple, uh, the tabernacle, into Jerusalem and then to construct a temple for a permanent dwelling place for God. It's David's idea, not God's, actually to build this house, this temple, for God. Right as Solomon will later say when the temple is actually dedicated, very similar to what Isaiah says here in this quote, that God doesn't need this. God doesn't need this temple. It's the people who need the temple. They need this reminder that there is a way for God to meet with man. A, need, a place in which their sins can be atoned for. That the people need the temple. God doesn't need it. Right? And so this, this charge that Stephen is blaspheming the temple. Stephen is, is pushing back, reminding them that they are more concerned with the, the physical edifice than they are with properly worshiping God as we'll see later. And so then he, he brings us to the time in which Solomon builds this first temple in verses 47 through 50, that this, this glorious temple is established and built during the time of Solomon in, in 1 Kings chapter 8. And actually, Stephen here decides to quote from Isaiah 66, but he almost could have easily just as quoted from 1 Kings chapter 8 verses 22 through 29, because the words that are spoken here are almost identical to the words that Solomon speaks when he's dedicating this temple. 
You can imagine as, as everyone is gathered here, as this son of David is standing before them, as this beautiful temple is inaugurated, and the, the glory of God will soon be so physically present that no one will be able to move or, or come close to the temple. Solomon reminds the people standing there that God is bigger than this temple, that this temple cannot contain him. He is so majestic and so mighty. He is not necessarily the God of Israel, but the God of the whole world. And Solomon reminds the people of that. I believe Solomon is trying to help them see that this temple is just stone and mortar, right? The temple stands as a, as a way to worship God, but it is not God. And so he could have easily quoted there, but instead he actually quotes from Isaiah chapter 66. And I think there's a very good reason that Stephen decides to quote from Isaiah instead of quoting from Solomon. For starters, here when, when, when we hear the words, heaven is my throne room and the earth is my footstool, the one speaking is actually God. So he's speaking through his prophet Isaiah to his people, reminding them, that indeed the, the temple that they're looking at is actually just a, a miniature, if you will. It's just a, a small copy of a greater and glorious uh, building, if you will, the one in which the Lord dwells in heaven. I'm sure, children, you may have seen like little miniatures or maybe even Legos, right? You imagine building a Lego house and thinking, well, I should live inside this Lego house, right? No, right? That wouldn't work very well. But here God is in a sense saying that that, that little temple that you're so concerned with, the actual temple that it's modeled on is so much more glorious because I dwell there. They've missed the point. Right? They're looking at the temple instead of looking at God. But I think there's another reason why Stephen quotes this. Because if you read the rest of the quote, uh, the rest of Isaiah 66 verses 3 through 4, God is then speaking to his people about how they are, are those who are running to commit idolatry. There are those who are making abominable sacrifices, and there are those who are refusing to listen. They're refusing to hear what God is saying. They're missing the point of the temple, and they're ultimately not listening to God. Sounds very familiar to a more modern situation to Stephen right now. As he, he calls out these priests, the high priest, and the, the men gathered there with this uh, quote that should pierce them to their soul, that heaven is God's throne room, not this temple, that they are those who are refusing to listen, as Stephen will draw that application in verse 51. Right, and when we, we think of the temple, and we think of what God desires from it, and you have this wonderful quote, right, in Micah chapter 6, verse 7 through 8. What does God desire? God desires, right, the, the temple system, the sacrifices were all moving to some uh, point in which it was to drive them to see their sins and their need of redemption and ultimately in the Lord Jesus Christ. But that, that belief, that faith was supposed to be transformative. It was supposed to transform them from the inside out that their belief in God as one who is holy, righteous, good, and just would then flow out into actions, as Micah says, to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God. The very thing the high priest, the, the priestly class, and, and the people there are, are missing with the purpose of the temple. And so that's where Stephen now, after this long stretch of redemptive history, he, he has, has brought all of these points together, right? Showing that Israel as a nation constantly rejects the redeemers God sends to save them. 
that, that he wants to show, as he'll say at the end of this section before he's killed, uh, this charge of blaspheming Moses and the law. It's actually Stephen who's being obedient to it. He is the one looking for the greater prophet. He's the one who is, is actually being obedient to the law in distinction from the men who would seek to kill him. And finally, he's shown throughout that God is, is worshipped, right? Not by geography, not by geography, but by spirit and truth. God's bigger than the temple, as God himself testifies. And really, when you think about the, the ancient Near East, especially when you read the Old Testament, right, there, there are all of these tribal deities, right? Babylon had their God. The, the Chaldeans had their God. The Canaanites had their God. The Egyptians had their God. And God is constantly reminding the people that he has called them as his people. And yes, in a sense, he is their God, but he's also greater than that. He's not a local tribal deity, but he is rather the God of the cosmos. And so Stephen now takes all of this and really hits them pretty hard. In verses 51 through 53, he, he highlights three problems that they have. The, the first one is they have a, a personal problem. There's a problem internal to them. He calls them stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and eyes. As I said in the, the children's talk, the, the idea of being stiff-necked probably does relate to agricultural times. You can think of having an ox trying to plow a field and trying to turn that ox and the ox refusing to do what you've said it to do. Or anybody you know, raising children realizing you ask them to do one thing and they do several other opposite things. But none of our children here would do, ever do that. But he, he says that they're stiff-necked. And actually, this idea of being stiff-necked becomes the, the, one of the dominant ways in which God speaks of his people throughout the Old Testament. It becomes idiomatic of Israel's stubbornness, the fact that they're obstinate and stubborn people. And so Stephen is actually just drawing on Old Testament themes. God has already called his people stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and eyes. And so as he, as he says, you're uncircumcised in heart, we're not just to think of emotions. Uh, the Hebrew word for heart, actually, funny enough, is actually the word for liver. Um, but the Hebrew word for heart really has a, a, this idea, not just the emotions, but everything. The, the will, the emotions, the thoughts, all of it. Uh, Stephen is saying your very center, the very core of your being is ceremonially unclean. It's broken. And the same goes for their eyes, right? He tells them they cannot actually see reality as it really is. I mean, think of what they've already done. They've ignored the words of the apostles. They've ignored the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. They've ignored the words of Stephen. They refuse to see the signs and wonders, the miracles that they're doing. They are clearly uncircumcised in heart and eyes. And Stephen uses this, right? The, the, the sign of circumcision was, was to show that you belonged to the people of God. And it was to be an outward sign that spoke of an inward transformation. That not only were you circumcised in the flesh, but circumcised in the heart. And Stephen is saying for, for all of the, the talk and the boasting and everything that you say, though you may be externally circumcised, you're internally no better than a pagan. You're uncircumcised. Right? That, that it's not just, and the Jews would know this, right? It's not just external circumcision that made you a true and faithful Israelite. The high priest would have known that. 
And yet here, Stephen is indicting them and saying, you don't really belong to God's people. In your heart, you're dead inside, and you refuse to see. And to make matters worse, Stephen goes on to say, it's not just a problem that you have, it's this hereditary problem in verses 51 through 52. Right? They, they stand in a long line of, of men and women who have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. They have rejected the prophets. If they were to look back at redemptive history, they'd be tempted to see themselves as those who stood with Moses or with Joshua or with the other prophets. And Stephen wants to disabuse them of this and say, no, when you look back at the Old Testament, you should see yourselves in those who stood up and fought against Moses, those who would refuse to go into the promised land, those who have killed the prophets time after time. That is who you are, and that is your family lineage in the Old Testament because you're doing the same thing that they did then. You refuse to listen. You refuse to heed the words of God's messengers. And you refuse to see so clearly that the Old Testament testified to this coming righteous one. And not only did you miss him, but you killed him. And finally, Stephen highlights the last is that there's a law problem. Again, remember, he was accused of blaspheming Moses and the law. But what have they done and, and what are they doing? Right? In the Lord Jesus Christ, they actually murdered an innocent man. And they know this. They know this. They bore false witness against Jesus and against Stephen. If you think about the way in which Jesus broke the commandments into two summary statements, he says, the first commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And the second is like it to love your neighbor as yourself. These men gathered around him, including the high priest, said, well, the loving God part is so much more important than the loving your neighbor part that I can choose to disregard that should the need arise. They're the ones that are standing here now, standing over top of the law, looking down upon it and saying, I can pick and choose what I want to do. And Stephen berates them, right? He says, you who received the law as delivered by angels. He's speaking of the, the time in which God spoke the law to Moses. God is recorded as speaking them and writing them on tablets of stone. And they are disobeying. They are deciding which laws they want to follow. They're deciding which are convenient for them. And he says, you did not keep it. Right? You, you, you can hear Stephen's words. Right? You, you accuse me of blaspheming the law. And yet you are the very ones who at a moment's notice will break it just because you find it convenient to do so. And so it's no surprise in, in verses 54 through 60 that hearing these words, they're enraged, they, they grind their teeth at him. They're almost like animals now. They are cut to the heart, the core of their being. And it's interesting to see that earlier in Acts, in, in Acts 2, verse 37, after Peter had delivered a, a similarly, similarly scathing sermon to the people, they're cut to the heart, but they're, they're cut to the heart in, in, in that they're filled with dread and fear and desiring to find repentance. Where here, though, there, there are different words being used in the Greek. They're, they're a similar idea. They're cut to the heart, but instead of being fearful, they're full of rage. They're grinding their 
teeth. And instead of desiring repentance, they're rushing headlong into murder. Yeah. And Stephen, uh, Luke records for us, right? They, they've judged Stephen to be guilty. They're going to drag him outside of the camp. They've set up false witnesses. They, they prejudged. They said this man was, was guilty from the get-go. And now they're desiring to carry out the sentence upon him. They are judge, jury, and executioner. But I love the way that, that Luke records for us, that what God has done for Stephen, though, though it seems as if everyone is judging Stephen as guilty, full of the Holy Spirit, he looks up into heaven. And it's, the heavens are, are pulled back, and he sees the, the throne room of God. He actually sees, right, the real heavenly temple. And there is God and the Lord Jesus Christ standing at his right hand, right? We confess in the Apostles' Creed that the Lord Jesus is sitting at his right hand. But here as he looks up, God is standing there and the Lord Jesus Christ is standing next to him at his right hand of power. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have judged Stephen to be a faithful servant, and in that instance, as, as Stephen is feeling the, the hate and all of this around him being pelted by rocks and stones that will take his life away, he sees and looks into heaven and realizes, right, as he falls asleep, it says, he will come and stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing full well that he'll hear those words. Well done, good and faithful servant. Jesus, I think he's standing there ready to receive Stephen into his midst. And so at hearing this, right, they stop their ears and they rush headlong, right? Stephen has already accused them of, of being spiritually deaf. They've always refused to listen. Well, here now they, 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 they show visibly that. And it's almost an ironic way. They drag him outside the camp. So the, the, the law when it has a death penalty attached to the breaking of it, you were to take them outside the camp just as the Lord Jesus was led out the camp. It's almost ironic that they're, they're so concerned that they'll follow this minute point of the law while completely ignoring the much greater element of it. And then Luke just kind of almost casually drops in this fact that there is a man amongst them named Saul. And we know... Saul will come to play a much more important role through the rest of the book of Acts. But he's introduced to us as the one standing around, approving of Stephen's murder, guarding the, the, the coats, the, the cloaks of those who are, are filled with rage. And so Luke leaves us this last will and testament of Stephen. And just note the way in which Stephen leaves this earth. He first, he, he trusts in the Lord, just as we sang from that version of Psalm 23. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He commits his trust to the Lord at the very end. He lived a life of trust, and now here at this moment, he continues to acknowledge his trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, a trust that transcends death. And actually, he also seeks for the forgiveness of those who are killing him at that moment. Right, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. 
I think in that moment, Stephen knows full well as they're so enraged that, that these men who are seeking to kill him, they are the ones who are blinded and enslaved by Satan. And then Luke records for us that he then, Stephen, falls asleep. It's an interesting choice of words there. He could have just said Stephen died. But I think Luke wants us to, to remember the doctrine of what happens after the death of a believer. That though Stephen's body is destroyed, his soul goes immediately. Stephen continues to live on, though his body is crushed by these stones here. Stephen himself is not ultimately dead. Stephen has gone now to dwell with the Lord Jesus Christ. As he saw earlier, the heavens parting. Now the reality of it is that Stephen is there with Jesus, awaiting the great day of resurrection. And again, as we, we've been seeing throughout Stephen's speech here, that Luke does seem to be highlighting ways in which Stephen and Jesus, that there's these parallels between their life and their death. Right? Both are, are, are dragged outside the camp to be murdered by false witnesses. At the end, when they die, both of them commit their spirits to God. And actually, it's Luke who records for us in the death of Jesus, Jesus' words crying out, asking for the forgiveness of those who are killing him. And I think what we see in the life of Stephen, right, where his master led, like the good shepherd, Stephen followed. And again, I come back to that, where we hear of Jesus speaking those words, well done, good and faithful servant. That this was Stephen's life. That from the time that he was converted, he has followed the Lord Jesus Christ. And at the end here, he hears those words. And really, before we move on to the end, right, it's worth thinking about. Right? Will we hear those words? We'll all face death someday. Will we hear those words? Will our life have been lived as faithful servants following Jesus? I remember in a movie once, uh, one of the characters, a uh, character dies and the other one comments that he had a good death. It's interesting to think about. He had a good death. And here in Stephen's life, right, we can say he had a good death. He died holding on to the hope of the Lord Jesus Christ. He died proclaiming that Jesus is more than any of these earthly goods could offer. Right? Stephen dies proclaiming the Lord Jesus Christ in the face of tremendous opposition. And I think it's important as believers to be thinking that way. What will it be when our time comes? Will we be like Stephen proclaiming the Lord Jesus Christ even in the face of opposition? And in a sense, it's, it's almost easy to idealize and think of that but how will we spend the rest of our lives until that point comes? Well, verses uh, 1 through 3 of chapter 8, uh, they start to show forth this plan that God has, and it acts as a bridge. Right? In, in one sense, it's culminating Stephen's life. We see his, his burial, but it's also setting the stage for what's going to come in Acts chapter 8 as the gospel will move forth now into Samaria. And we see in, in verse 1, we come back to Saul who approves of this execution. And it sounds as if he's the, the genesis of this great persecution that comes against the church. 
And this great persecution happens and then forces the church to scatter throughout the world to Judea and to Samaria. And when we see this, it's interesting to see that Luke is pretty light on the details of who this Saul is. He just sort of pops up here in the story of Acts. He's not been mentioned before. We don't have really a whole lot of context for who he is. And part of that we have to remember is that Luke is actually writing this as it's already taken place, and he's writing it to Christians and to churches who know this story. They know that this man who, who persecuted the church, who approved of Stephen's death, who drags men and women to prison, is the very same one who became the apostle to the Gentiles and Luke's friend and traveling companion. And Luke also here is now uh, beginning to show this is seeding the great turning point in the book of Acts. As we, we finished with Acts chapter 6, where the gospel goes forth to uh, Jerusalem, now moving out to Judea. And here in between the, the, the great persecution, uh, we're reminded in, in verse 2 of Stephen's burial. Luke recounts for us that the church was scattered, but the, the leadership, the apostles, remained behind. In some sense, showing that though this great persecution is happening, the, the church is not destroyed in Jerusalem. There are still leaders there, and there actually are still faithful Christians, right? There are devout men who bury Stephen and publicly lament over him, right? The, these men who are burying Stephen are publicly proclaiming that in the midst of this persecution, they're still Christians. They take great risks just as Stephen did. In verse 3, where we end here with this great persecution, Saul is ravaging, ravaging the church, right? You can, can you imagine what it would be like to hear that knock on the door or the door being kicked in and people coming in to take you to prison where it might just end up in your death? That's what Saul is doing. He, he is taking men and women. He is separating families. He is hauling them off to prison. You can think later when Paul says, I am the worst of sinners. There's some gravity to that. But really what Luke is recounting here is something that still takes place today. I mean, it's a good reminder to pray for our brothers and sisters around the world where the reality of doors being kicked in and being hauled off to prison is a very real danger. And yet... The comfort that is the book of Acts to, to those believers who are suffering today, to, to us here, to Stephen and to the, the churches there, is that all of this suffering is being directed by God to one great end. I mean, think about it. In this world, we have two ways that we can view suffering. Right? Either it's meaningless because life has no meaning. Or as, as our text tells us today, that, that suffering and persecution are being directed by a God who is good towards a great end. Right? The suffering and this persecution that, that, that come, satanically inspired, right, is used by God to push the church out from Jerusalem. The, the beginnings of fulfilling that to the ends of the earth is caused here by the very people thinking that they're going to destroy it. We don't always know the end of, of suffering and persecution, 
uh, today. One ancient church theologian said, though, he said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. I mean, it's easy to say that right now, right? Well, we have freedom, <laughs> right? We, we, we can worship freely here. Being a Christian in the UK, well, not the easiest, doesn't automatically target us for jail. I mean, it doesn't mean that's not the way things will always be. But it does mean that whatever happens, right, God is directing all things towards his end so that his church grows, bringing him glory, and that ultimately his kingdom comes. I mean, think about what Jesus said before he departed. The gates of Hades, the gates of hell will never overtake my church. As we, we come to the end of, of Stephen's life here and of his, his uh, epic speech, right, just a few things for us to be remembering about Stephen, right? Stephen dies like Jesus as a faithful witness to the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And Stephen's words here, right, they, they, they should cut us to the core as well. Right, Stephen, if he were here standing before us, would be asking, what is your hope? Right, is it in the external things that you were baptized, you pray, you read your Bible, you attend the church, or is it in the Lord Jesus Christ? Because all of those things, though they're good in the midst of persecution and suffering, right, it's ultimately faith in the Lord Jesus Christ was how Stephen was able to face all of this and die that good death, right? And, and Acts has, has been showing us from the beginning, right, that it's the Lord Jesus Christ who reigns in heaven, who sends his spirit, who empowers his church, who commissions and sends them out to the ends of the earth, that he is still in control over it all. Indeed, as he promised, the gates of Hades cannot overtake his church, right? Governments try to stop Christianity all the time. And how's that working out for China? Right? I don't mean to be glib about it, but the church is not destroyed. Just as it's not destroyed here in the UK, in the US, around the world. Christianity continues to grow because Jesus is on the throne. Right? And at the end, right, we look as Stephen did, not to him, but to the one he hoped in. Right? As, as I quoted last time from the Heidelberg Catechism, question one. What is our only comfort in life and death? Right, it's the Lord Jesus Christ in this morning. Do you have that hope? That though everything were taken from you, if you have the Lord Jesus, then you have everything. And do we believe that this morning? Let us pray. You've been listening to the Sermon Podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church. You can find us out online at gloucesterpres, that's P-R-E-S, dot co, dot U-K. 